Vatican II committed acts of rupture, and Pope Benedict admitted the naivete of the council, which vindicates the trads. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This is Timothy Flanders at the Meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Welcome to Pope Benedict Vindicates the Trads. This is a series about trads and traditional Catholicism in the modern period post-Vatican II and a discussion among trads about how Pope Benedict's actions, his words, and his mistakes helped to vindicate the traditional movement and its concerns about the crisis in the church. Today, we'll be talking about another act of rupture at the Second Vatican Council regarding the Holy Office using the sources from Peter Seawalt. So before we get into that, we want to encourage you to join the guild, the online guild, to access the, we're going to have, um, in just actually about a half hour, we will be discussing E. Michael Jones's article here, Synodality's Hidden Ethnic Grammar. So that's going to be talking about what we're talking about today, but what's going into the German sit-in and how that relates. And we'll also be getting into, uh, E. Michael Jones will be on the Guild stream uh, May 31st. So he'll be coming on uh, later this month. And he'll be talking about, he he actually has a, a review of Peter Seewald's two-volume biography of Joseph Ratzker. And that'll be his article for the next month's Culture Wars it's called Ratzker and the German Problem. So it's a very, very important discussion. So that'll be on the Guild stream. So if you want to be part of the Guild, you can access the Guild content and the Guild community. Go to patreon.com slash meaning of Catholic. You can also donate to be a part of the Guild. Can't afford it? Just reach out to me and we can get you be a part of the Guild. The Guild is also designed to help us support each other so that we can help each other through the internet and in our local community against the Marxists. So Patreon.com slash meaning of Catholic. So let's talk about the acts of rupture of Vatican II. So we talked in the last, the last stream was about the SSPX and Ratzinger and the Paschal Mystery. We talked about that in uh, part seven. All of the parts, this is part eight right now. Part nine is going to be on the Guild stream in 30 minutes. Um, all of these parts are um, linked below. So if you're going to go through one through seven, we talked about, uh, I think it was part six, when we talked about the rupture of Vatican II in throwing out the previous documents, because it was literally an act of throwing out the previous tradition, because that was an the, the previous tradition was contained in these, in these schemata, and by throwing them out, it was an act of rupture. And so when we talk about this rupture, we're trying to illustrate the reality of the council. Now, as we said, some of these realities are also present at Vatican I. So we shouldn't, as trads, we shouldn't blame everything on Vatican II. We should see the bigger picture about what's going on here. We've also talked about the fact that Vatican II was an overreaction to an existing problem. And then we'll talk about some of that today with the Holy Office. So when we talk about acts of rupture, we're talking about the reality of what happened at the council, which has an effect on how the council is implemented, how the council is understood by the faithful and by the bishops. And so when we talk about these acts of rupture, we're talking about the historical reality of what went down. And this is the reality of what went down at Vatican II, was that there were acts of rupture. So let's talk about one of those. We're going to talk, 
we're going to quote here from volume one of Peter Sewell. This is the, the newest biography here uh, on page 445. Now, we talked about the situation after the anti-modernist um, crusade under Pius X and how there were excesses. And one of the excesses was that the Holy Office was operating with such suspicion and such intensity and such zeal that there were there was a lack of due process and this is what happens here now seawald talks about how at vatican ii cardinal frings who was the leader of the german party he was the mouthpiece of joseph ratzinger joseph ratzinger was his paratus joseph ratzinger was writing most of his speeches and one of these is coming in when there is a debate about the Holy Office. Now, this comes in, in 444. It, here's the rupture because Peter Sewall talks about how the Holy Office suffered a lethal blow. This is page 444. This is on the 8th of November, 1963. I believe this is the second session of the council. So we talked about the first session when they started throwing out documents through the influence of Joseph Ratzinger. Now we have in 1963, we have this attack on the holy office which is when it's dealt a lethal blow now here's the speech influenced by ratziger that cardinal frings gives at the council and he stands up and challenges the the actions of the holy office this is page 445 of seawald he says this cardinal frings at the council in this con congregation as well the holy office no one who is charged on a matter of correct faith should be judged or condemned without him and his bishop first being heard themselves, without him first knowing the arguments put forward against him or the book written by him, and without him first being given the opportunity to correct himself or his book. End quote. This is, then this, this uh, provoked applause in the aula. Now, this is getting at some of the excesses that were alleged to have happened, and we know that some of them did happen based on the evidence we presented in, in previous shows. And so there was not there was a lack of due process in the processing of the Holy Office. And uh, based on this, th I mean, his, his demands here are, are pretty reasonable, we would say, uh, just to have due process, essentially, where the Holy Office is not going to pounce on someone who's actually orthodox because of something he is trying to develop that is, uh, you know, a true development or something like that. And, but this is, this gives the appearance in, in what occurred of a zealous militant revolution against the Holy office, de dealing it a lethal blow. And this is what, uh, this is what caused this rupture is that there is this revolution against the Holy office because of the Holy Office's excesses, which causes a rupture. And so the difficulty with looking at it sort of from the magisterial standpoint and the whole development of doctrine and the, and the, the response of the church to modernism and the modernist crisis and the revolutionary period is that how do you deal with all these modernists that are poisoning and infecting the church? Because they're lying deceivers. And how do you distinguish them from the Orthodox? Well, the proper way to do it is the Inquisition. The Inquisition had a full method of due process, and it was a well-oiled machine. 
the Inquisition. But what happens after Pius X, Benedict XV, is that there is this excess in the operation of the Holy Office, which causes this revolution, this overreaction. So the Andrew says, Pius X did not crash modernism. It kept on living and growing inside the church despite all the good documents and interventions of Pius X. Right. I mean, this is the difficulty of the situation. Pius X did all that he could. But as we as we quoted before from Henry Sear, a indefatigable traditional historian, he talks about how Pius X's actions actually led to an unintended consequence, which was this excessive environment, this ex excessive neo-Thomism. We've talked about this with Matthew Minard during this period. And this is what causes this act of rupture. So it's a de facto act of rupture. And what it results in is the Holy Office being, uh, being disarmed, loses its teeth. And so right at 1965, this is right when Dietrich von Hildebrand comes and says, we need to issue the charitable anathema to stop the heresies. Uh, Ottaviani writes to all the bishops of the whole world in 1965 and says, you must stop heresies. Lefebvre writes back and says, yes, let's condemn heresies. But because the Holy Office has been disarmed by Cardinal Frings at the council through Joseph Ratzinger, this is the problem where the Holy Office is disarmed because of this act of rupture. And so the heresy runs rampant. And it's not until Cardinal uh, Joseph Ratzinger becomes a bishop and a cardinal in 1977. And then he's later appointed by John Ball II, where the Holy Office starts to really try to crack down. So they actually try to restore that, that sort of that rupture with the Holy Office in the later 1970s and 1980s, going into the 90s, especially. So um, J Jacob Fowler, one of our members, is in the chat talking about Nicaea did not crush Arianism. Yeah, this is what we've talked about. Jacob Fowler has a great uh, series on the ecumenical councils. And this is an issue like it's there's there's. The problem is that there are certain acts of rupture at various councils, which become sort of this de facto rupture situation. And this is what we this is the reality that we have. So the traditionalists are trying to say there is a rupture. We're, we're just look. I mean, we're just a faithful practicing Catholic in anywhere, USA, anywhere, Europe. It's 1965. And we look at the situation and we say there's a rupture. Well, they're correct because there's a situation where. Um, the council and the acts of the council, the individual acts of uh, Cardinal Frings are causing this de facto rupture. I love this quote that Seawall brings. This is from Pius IX uh, on 447. He says this, Pius IX back in the 19th century, he says this, quote, a council is ruled first by the devil, then by humans, but finally by God. And I think that really is, is borne out in the history of all the councils and as, as Fowler has, has begun to enunciate in the first millennium. Um, and I think, and I'll share in this series eventually. And if you read my book, city of God, um, you see my hypothesis as to what is sort of this role of Vatican II, even though there's these de facto acts of rupture, uh, shout out to, uh, Mark. What's up, brother over in the Netherlands. Welcome. Um, so I want to, end with two quotations here that talks about how um, Pope Benedict admits the naivete of the council, because the, the problem with Vatican II was that it did not exercise the virtue of caution. 
The virtue of caution is to see and avoid future evil. To see and avoid future evil. And this is the naivete that Bratziger admits. Now, first, his, his biography, Peter Seewald, um, first admits, he's the one who admits the naivete first. This is at the end of volume one, page 462. Um, he says, he says this, Ratzinger's strengths clearly came to the fore at Vatican Council. However, his weaknesses also cannot be overlooked. One was the failure to realize the consequences that the desire for change might have for the destruction of the deconstruction of the church, especially in the area of the liturgy. So this is exactly what Cardinal Frings does with this lethal blow against the Holy Office. He creates this revolutionary rupture situation, basically. Moving on, Seawold continues. Second, there was a naivete about a situation that not only represented an interesting theological approach, as Ratzinger long believed, but also strove to change the system. He definitely underrated the power of a developing mass media society, end quote. So this is, this is a, a situation that very much arose because there was this lack of virtue of caution. Now, Pope Benedict himself admits the same thing in his interview with Peter Sewald. Um, so if you go to uh, pages, this 142. So in 142, he says this. So this is Pope Benedict Emeritus talking to Peter Sewald. He says this, we at Vatican II, we at Vatican II handled things correctly, even if we certainly did not correctly assess the political consequences and the actual repercussions. One thought too much of theological matters then and did not reflect on how these things would come across, end quote. So Pope Benedict is admitting there that there's, there is some naivete with the Council Fathers of Vatican II. There is some lack of, lack of caution, lack of this virtue of caution. Um, and there is sort of this idea that we're just a bunch of theologians kind of debating it out and and we're not realizing that there are these actual repercussions that are happening um and this is something to his credit but um joseph ratzker does realize this and he's able to admit it in, as pope benedict and then later as i said he he becomes he more and more starts to sort of reel in what was happening at vatican ii uh, and this is something that Joseph Pierce really brings out in his book, Defender of the Faith, where he talks about uh, Joseph Ratzinger Benedict really trying to bring out Vatican II, the, the good things of Vatican II that he's trying to do that are a, a proper development here. But he's also trying to clamp back down on these heretics. But the problem is, and this is what we'll discuss in the Guild stream in just a minute, the problem is that the acts of rupture ended up giving fuel to the heretics. And this is what leads us to a discussion about the German synodal way. As E. Michael Jones discusses in this article, the German synodal way is intimately tied to Joseph Ratzker and the whole German movement at Vatican II. So that's all we have today on Pope Benedict vindicates the trads. We'll talk more in about 15 minutes. Uh, at the, on the guild stream. So if you're in the guild, hop into the guild stream. It's going to happen very soon. I want to just get a few. Um, I just want to get a few comments here. Um, Andrea says, 
Arianism was ultimately defeated in time while modernism triumphed inside the church after Vatican II. Jacob says, uh, it is exactly the same concept. Arians were inside the church also for a long time as modernists are now. Uh, I mean, I I would basically, I mean, I think that Nicaea and like this situation, it, it is the same in some sense. And it's also different in some sense, because uh, what we what we just talked about was that we have a situation where there's an established status quo about the way that the Holy Office is working. Now, as we said, some of that is a little excessive and that's provoking this reaction. But we have an, something that's established. And by the action of Vatican II, we have a um, upending of what was established. And there's other instances of that we can discuss. But um, I think Nicaea is slightly different because Ni Nicaea is not in terms of particular doctrines, it's not upending what came before, but in the other sense it is because it is establishing ecumenical councils on the, as an imperial act. It is establishing terms like homoousios, which is an innovation. So I think in some ways it is, it's the same. Some ways it's different. Um, Sarah says, just picked up city of God. I'm just starting out, but the concept of anti-culture does so much to explain the state of the world. I've learned a ton from your show. Um, Thanks, brother. I'm glad glad to hear it, man. Um, let's see. Let me just see other some other uh, some other questions here. Andrea says it's very important to distinguish among the Vatican II documents. De Verbum is a very good Orthodox document, but Nostra Aetate, religious liberty, are the ultimate rupture. Uh, I think that that's it's it's a reasonable um, reasonable things to say. Uh, it's. There, yeah, there certainly are different documents that have different strengths and weaknesses. Um, I really like the uh, the the document on the lay apostolate. It actually talks about the idolatry of progress in that one, so I really like that. Um, yes, there was an idea that the world was now going to be top notch. I think it's partially because of the tech craze. We would eradicate hunger; all men would become brethren. Yes, uh, that's certainly the case. Ratzker says elsewhere that. Taylor de Chardin influenced the council fathers. There was this great enthusiasm for the technological advances. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. So the uh, Michael says, what ruptures are apparent in Vatican one? Well, um, what happened at Vatican one was that there was essentially two orthodox parties there was the ultramontanist party at vatican one and then there was the uh so the newman party which was opposed to in imposed opposed to the to the promulgation of the doctrine but was believing of the doctrine and then there was a third party who were heretics they didn't believe in the doctrine at all and the rupture happens when there is a uh, an establishing of a certain excessive ultramontanism as an indirect, unintentional result of the definition. This is a, there's a quote from Newman after Pastor, Pastor Returnus, where Newman is writing to his friend and he s expresses his concern about the, the definition of Pastor Returnus leading to this excessive amount of ultramontanism where it's it's not the the orthodox doctrine of ultramontanism, but it, it's something that's far more excessive. Um, 
so that would be this idea of rupture especially in the sense that the one orthodox party tried to suppress another orthodox party um and they really need to be balanced this is something that uh, i discuss in my book again um and this, there's a similar thing that happens at vatican ii because um because of this action as i said joseph rasker and cardinal frangs they give fuel to the heretics and they they join with the heretics sort of indirectly fighting against the curia which is just another orthodox party they should have they should have joined forces with the curia against people like hans kuhn and the heretical people um so that is um that's some of the aspects uh in the um in my book, we talk about these these similarities, Vatican I and Vatican II. Andrea says, idolatry of progress. So true. Good invention, interventions on liturgy in St. Thomas Aquinas II in Vatican II. But then it got completely betrayed a few years later. Absolutely. Um, John says, Yota Unum is really good too. A bishop speaks by Monsignor Lefebvre is a great primary account, also moderate in tone. Yeah, I've been, I've, I'm not too familiar with Lefebvre's writings. I've been reading his biography and I'm really quite impressed by how nuanced Lefebvre really is and how moderate he really is. It's, it really gives the lie to the caricature that is out there of Lefebvre as this sort of very reactionary, closed-minded, rigid traditionalist. Uh, he, he seems to be very, uh, just very nuanced in the, in the, his approach to everything. So, um, that is, uh, that's all we have. So thanks so much for watching. Benedict vindicates the trads. Uh, so we'll be talking about E. Michael Jones on the guild stream in just a minute. Um, so let's offer up a, uh, an, our father and a hail Mary. And we'll, we'll ask for the intercession of our patrons at this apostolate for the intentions of our apostolate, which is uniting Catholics against the enemies of Holy church. This is the, the icon of Our Lady of Fatima, the Russian Greek Catholic icon. And we're just going to pray in Our Father and a Hail Mary, and we'll close it out. Nomine Patris, et Fidei Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Pater Nostra, Aquies, and Chedis, Sancti Vigetum, Nomen Tuum, Adveniat Regnum Tuum, Fiat Voluntas Tua, Sicut in Trello, Tentara, Panem Nostrum, Putidianam, Tanibus Odiae, Dimitu Nobis Debitur Nostra, Sicut in Nostimitimus Debitoribus Nostris, Etonenus in Ducas, in Tatasunem, Libranos Amalo, Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus Tecum, Benedicta Tuum Diarbus, et Benedictus Fructus Ventris Tui, Jesus. Santa Maria Mate Dei, Ora Pronobis, Peccatoribus, Nucut in Hora Motis Nostre, Amen. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons, pray for us. St. Anthony of the Desert, pray for us. In nomine Patris, et Fidei Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Christ is risen.